my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler, and joining me on this two-wheeled adventure is the twilight sparkle of two wheels, Mr. Shaheen Alvandi! I'm sparkly! Actually, I'm really happy you gave me this Oreo, and it's not regular. It's not double stuffed. It is, as you called it, mega mega stuffed. I know we're just giving him a free heads up or whatever the fuck it is, a shout out here on this thing. But dude, I've never seen an Oreo so stuffed. It's ridiculous. It's like, it's basically triple stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It's The stuffing is thicker than the Oreo cookie by like two to one. Substantial amount. Yeah. It's been that kind of day though. At least for me, it has been. Been been running around a little crazy. Yeah. We just got back from Austin. Dude, Texas. Texas was rad. Got Where to see you? so many listeners. Super so many. I got so many high fives. Did you get any hugs? Zero hugs. What the fuck? Come on, guys. Thank you for that. Thank you. Listeners, I put out a very simple request on Instagram, and some of y'all were like, I'm going to squeeze them so hard. I definitely got a couple hugs from people that that should know better. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there going... I hate this hug right now. Are you now. touching me? Like, you're a good person. I like you, but we're, I don't want to hug you. Don't touch me. We were don't eating lunch me. together at the Alpine Stars booth, and I just wanted so badly to reach into your plate, but I was already so full. It would have just been no, for we're an there. exercise. You and I can do that. We're, I, that's fine. I know. I would say, like, on Jensen's weird personal barrier, personal space thing, like, the first onion layer is is food. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take much for me to get to the food sharing point. Like, but I have to know who you are. We need to have maybe had food together before or maybe progressed through the meal where we can start, you know, sharing like a cookie at dessert or something like that. Nice, nice. We can get there pretty quick. I feel like you and I are the closest you'll get with the mail before it starts getting, you know, intercourse related. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm but I understand you're not I mean, the only, I feel you're that not the only male that I feel that way about Shane. Uh give me the rest of their names. I'll go kill them <laughs> one by one. But I earned this shit. But the hug, the hug is it's it's a little bit deeper into the onion than I think it is for most other people. Really? Well, obviously it is, but it's it's down there. It's a couple layers. I feel like we have almost the same inseam, and when I hug you, and I really go in for it, like we bump heads twice. Yeah. Okay. I'll put it this way. <laughs> this is this is this is another one of my weird scales. This is like the Jensen scale of personal space. Okay. It's very Dutch sometimes, you know? Yeah. So, like, sharing food, let's say that's like an 85. Okay. A hug is closer to, like, 95. Whoa. Letting you ride one of my bikes is, like, a 97. Oh, yeah. Can I borrow one of your bikes after this? Yeah. Sweet. Oh, dude, see, I'm a 97. Yeah, you're in. You're in. We hug. But that's the thing. Like, like I think you talked a lot of motorcyclists. And like, I don't let other people ride my bikes. Or like, or or they can probably name like the five friends or the three friends that are like they right. would let right. on their motorcycle. That's where I'm at with hugs. I don't want to hug that many people. I'm just not a hugger. We can sure. high five. We we can we can shake hands. We can enjoy a baseball game together. Do you have different levels of hugs? Like, are you a side hugger with some people, and then they work in with maybe like the two handed hug? But you know, it's a quickie. Yeah, it's probably it's not like an intentional thing, but it's just it's more like my uneasiness with the hug. Like the situation, who the person is, how clean I think they are. I, I forget who it was. I think it was someone from Revit that saw me pinch your ass at Coda and they looked uncomfortable for you. And you were just kind of like, oh, it's just this idiot. Yeah, no, that would, <laughs> yeah. Well, pinching the ass would be like 110. Well, not that high. It's like a 98. No, I feel like sex is at 110 for you. 
No, no. Sex would be like 60. Oh, shit. Yeah. Damn it. It's just weird. It's it's not rational. It's just, you know, it just is what it is. I'm okay, just, what, at I what am level do you let... I'm just speaking my truth, Shaheen. No, no, I believe you. I'm just trying to understand and absorb as much as I can in this short <laughs> life that I have living here. But at, at what level do you allow your partner to use your toothbrush? Second date. Wow. Totally fine with that. That's not what I... I like, I expected that to it's be It's not like, a germ thing. I don't have issues with... In fact... I've dated several women that were like, you have appalling like germ sensitivities. <laughs> There's like, like food falls on the floor. Ice cream falls on my floor. No problem. <laughs> That's going back on the cone. I'm the same way. I oh, had an oyster oh. that fell on the table at a restaurant in Austin. I just picked it up and put it in my face. And everybody at that table who see me do weirder shit was like, really? The oyster, table oyster in your mouth? I'm like, I mean, I grew up in the Middle East. If this kills me, Jesus, really? Yeah, seriously, right? Uh, oh, I got a wound. I have an open wound. Just rub some more dirt in it. That'll clean it up. <laughs> That'll out. fix it up. Yeah, no worries. I'm a I'm a firm believer of uh, of uh, crazy glue on my wounds. My cat shits in my office on a daily basis. Cody, seriously, not, we got to talk about this. <laughs> it's not the shit that bothers me. It's the time that it takes to clean it up. <laughs> you are very inconvenienced by your <laughs> cat. Bare hand that thing and throw it right into the toilet. That's no why we have soap, Jensen. Yeah, that's what exactly. Exactly. Yep. You have soap. You can clean that up. Germs, not an issue. I'm making my immune system stronger. But um, hugs, just... Hugs are just... I don't know. I feel like I should talk to my mom about this. <laughs> did you... I know. I'm, I'm wondering what like, your hug history is When I was a kid, like. did something happen? <laughs> Do we have a weird uncle that I don't know about? <laughs> He's dead. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, but yeah, cool. so we were in Austin. We were there for the MotoGP weekend. We saw a lot of you, which was awesome. Um, too many people to name, but I had some really cool conversations. And I don't know if you feel this way, Shaheen, but I certainly do. Going to events uh, like a race or a show or whatever or whatever it may be where we run into fans and we get a chance to talk to them and, and see your guys' enthusiasm for, for what we're doing like makes it all worthwhile. Super. Uh, we're, we're not making any money right now nope. off this. So, um, although I think we do have an official hamburger of the show now. We do. We have an official hamburger of the show, but that's still not making us money. It's just taking a, it's four dollars and des- 10 less dollars out of my pocket. Yeah. It's like $10. I'm not going to have to spend on food today. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but it makes all the hard work. Cause like truthfully, time wise, this thing's, this thing's a time suck to do. Yeah. Uh, we got to do a little prep. We got to do a lot of editing. We've got to set up and record. We've been doing some marathon two-hour shows lately, um, and people have been listening to them. Now, I'm, I'm, listen, listeners. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to uh, Jensen's very, very handsome voice and my silky st- smooth one nine hundred number voice. You're the somebody, Twilight Sparkle, man. Somebody Twilight told me Sparkle. that. Yeah. Um, so somebody told me, and I can't remember who it was, but it's, it was a friend that you sound like Ben Affleck on this show. I also look like Ben Affleck. You also look like Ben Affleck's stunt double. He was on the a, show. He was the bomb in Phantoms, yo. <laughs> Jane Silent Bob, yeah. Not a lot of people get that reference. There's like, really? You watched Phantoms? That was a horrible movie. Thank you. I appreciate that. You see, that's why you're in the hug tree. That's why I'm up there. That's, that's why, why you're in that. You're in the trust tree with that. You get me. <sighs> um, but no, I like the enthusiasm totally re-energizes me on doing the podcast it's so awesome to see the fans that are stoked on the show that was that was fun um it was fun to talk about stuff talk about tires you know now you know when some of the listeners have you one-on-one they want to talk about your favorite gear and come at me man i'm over there i'm chatting i was giving out lots of stickers 
A lot of stickers. A lot of stickers. Got a lot of stickers. I only have like maybe a dozen left. I got a couple more than that. You got to pick up more. I was mostly working that weekend. So, um, yeah, she, I, I barely saw you this weekend. Tell me what your weekend was about. Like, <laughs> I walked a lot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I walked about 10 miles a day. I legitimately did. I, I got the little Apple Watch tracker. I did like 11 miles every day. I must have been up there with you. You must have been doing more because I was sitting on my butt for some of it. I mean, there was times where I would be on the other side of Coda and you'd text me be like, hey, you have to be here in five minutes. We're going to go check out the Ducati paddock. And I would run. My ass would run. (laughs) I would like to see that. Texans do not like brown guys with backpacks strapped to their bags (laughs) running through a public place. Let me tell you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah, man. I got to to shake a lot of hands and kiss a lot of babies. Um, Yeah. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. What did you like that you saw that was off track? That that wasn't on like the racing and all that. Um, I got to go to the handbuilt show and got to see some really really cool bikes. Um, the handbuilt show for those people that don't know what it is is a just a big custom bike uh, show that you know shows off a lot of people's stuff. It's 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 a little it's a lot more polished than I remember it being. Like there are less garage builds in it than I would like to see. I think that's the space, though. To be honest, I think I really wanted to get to the hand belt this year, and I didn't have a chance. So um, they had the super hooligans out there racing. They had like a tiniest. I've never seen such a small racetrack. It's just a parking lot that they created this neat little track, and they were making them jump the curbs. Yeah, that was super awesome. Our our boy Andy DeBrino was out there. Yeah, he had a. Did we talk about this last show, or do we talk about? Yeah, you talked about his uh, his Duke seven ninety with his seven ninety. It looked cool. I'm, we're gonna. I think I'm gonna go do something with him with that. That we, thing's we were pretty talking. badass. It's pretty. There. So KTM's gonna bring that out hopefully next year. Although I've heard there's maybe some delays going on, but they're gonna bring that out proper. Right. For the American Flat Track Series for the Twins class. Nice. And I mean, it puts out some impressive power. It's a, it's a cool little package. And Andy's running mostly a street bike, but you look at the swing arm. And it's this tiny little swing arm. Yeah. It looks like just uh, two chopsticks on the back it's holding on somehow. the wheel. So I don't. I would imagine that's for the flex. They probably want more flex through the chassis. But I haven't really had a chance to talk to them about what they're doing. And but uh, I don't think he had a very good weekend. I think he had some troubles. But yeah, he had a little bit of troubles, but he was still there, rocking his new shiny silver suit, which which really drove me to want a gold suit even more. It looks good in person, Jensen. We got to start looking and seeing who's got like a gold leather. Yeah. I'm trying because there is a MotoGP team where the riders were in gold type leather at some point, like a metallic kind of color. I think Dainese has close to that, but Maybe. it's not full on. We'll have to, we'll have to figure that out. They need to commit out. to the idea of the metallic leather. Yeah. Or at least I need to maybe get it out of my head, but I, I'm going to keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. I think we can make that happen. Which, by the way, anytime somebody high fives me and screams, I like Gould, I was like, I need to get a big chain. You're such a weird dude. <laughs> I like my gold on my vehicles, not on my own personal. Like, I don't wear gold rings yeah, or don't have any gold teeth. Which surprised me. Like, I could see you with like a proper big gold necklace. I need to do that. I got to do that. And maybe some like, uh, there's a company called, I forget their name, but they make really big gold uh, rings. Mm-hmm. And I got to order me some. They're like. You know, they're bronze, not gold, but they're still shiny. Makes me very happy every time I see like some big biker dude wearing stuff like that. But I don't have that look. I don't know. I, I could, but I just don't enjoy it. You could do the Persian pirate thing really Oh, easily. man, Persian. Yeah, just let the chest hair out. I'm Persian. Oh, you're you know, so that was a problem. Uh, when we were in Austin, We I left Portland and it was 48 degrees and I got to Austin and it was like 80 degrees. 
And I hadn't had a chance to get rid of some of this fleece that I got, this naturally occurring fleece. And uh, I was walking around in shorts in Austin at night, and people are like, are you not freezing? I'm like, have you looked at me? <laughs> Do you know where <laughs> I'm, I'm from? insulated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it would have helped you in the media center, too, because they love cranking up that AC. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed hanging out in there. That was a cool behind the scenes. I've never seen that before. The media center there is quite good. Yeah. Um, and that's only half of it, actually. Wow. You, you can't tell the far wall is is one of those um, sectional walls. Right. And there's a whole other room. It's the same size. And they put uh, half of that is the Clinica Mobile um, health team. Where they, they'll like, uh, the do sports people. massages and they'll do... They'll do like sports tape, like the the stuff that isn't too serious. KT tape or whatever it's yeah, called. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know who I ran into and who got a safety third sticker from me was the one and only Guy Martin. Oh, really? Dude, I stood and stared at him for five minutes trying to figure out who he was. I'm so bad at recognizing faces in person. So I'm just standing there and, you know, one of our buddies was next to me and like, who is that? He goes, who? I'm like, that guy. That guy looks so familiar. He's like, oh, maybe he's a singer of a band. He looks really familiar to me, too. (laughs) And literally, like, we're just going back and forth and naming, like, bands and movie stars. And finally, a complete stranger walks up to me and goes, dude, that's Guy Martin. I was like, oh, shit. Well, he gets a safety third sticker because, I mean, it's Guy Martin. Right. Yeah, he he seemed to appreciate it. He he thanked me. He called me mate. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. He can be a little mercurial sometimes. I'm not sometimes, like, all the time. But um, I think he's a genuine enthusiast of yeah. of sport, motorsports, and and things like that. You can I'm, tell he was a little freaked out every time people would just run up to him because as soon as I realized it was Guy Martin, it's like ten other people realized it too, and they just wanted to yeah. be in his aura. And he was, you could just see he got a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame him. Guy's <laughs> a diesel mechanic, man. Come on, he just wants to do his thing. He's proper celebrity status. He is proper motorcycle celebrity status. But I've learned that in America, a lot of these motorcycle celebrities that are big in europe they can just walk around sort of freely here outside of the track nobody knows who they are well that, we were actually talking about that um with my MotoGP gp colleagues and we we're kind of laughing like you know some of the riders if, if they're not in like their team livery like it can be hard, hard to spot yeah. them you see them walking around like oh oh yeah oh no yeah that, that's andrea de Vizioso. oh yeah i don't recognize you without a red hat on i was literally next to josh Heron. and i was trying to get a a uh, water out of the cooler and had to like move him out of my way. I didn't know who I was like, Hey, sir, in the blue Suzuki thing, can you get out of the way? I'm thirsty. <laughs> and then today, looking at his Instagram, I'm like, Oh, fuck, that was Josh Aaron. Yeah, you're a jerk. <laughs> now we're going to get fried on social media because you're great. <laughs> I am so bad at recognizing people. You have to like walk up to me and be like, Hey, I am Josh Aaron. I'd be like, You sure are. He had a good weekend though. I did. He, uh, he won the, uh, the race on Sunday. Yeah. Suzuki was kicking it. Suzuki kicking did, did it quite well. Um, it was really uh, interesting for me on Saturday. Was it Saturday? The first Superbike race. Must have been Saturday. Yeah. And the entire... So they, ha- they have the race up on the huge screen in the media center. Right. And like we're watching the last few laps and it's a four-way go at it. You know, pretty much the entire race. But the, you know, the last few laps, everyone's watching and there's like a new bike every you know, couple of turns leading the race. And so one by one, the journalists start perking up. And I think at the end of that race, just about everybody in that room was watching uh, the Moto America Superbike uh, race at Austin. And I think they were impressed. I think that was a really pivotal moment to help kind of legitimize the series in the eyes of, of overseas journalists. Yeah, it is sort of a redheaded stepchild of the, of the sport for whatever reason. Well, it's hard because, one, we haven't had any... Well, we haven't had any success in sending American talent out of our paddock over to theirs. 
and, and Josh Heron's a great example of that yeah. where, you know, he wins the Moto America Superbike Championship, goes to Moto 2, and it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons that it's a disaster. Um, but, you know, facts are facts. Why do you think are like top three reasons something like that doesn't doesn't work out so well? So many things, right? Like Moto Two, especially. Um, like why was Moto Nikki Hayden able to translate that the first, at least the first year of it? Who was? I'm sorry, Nikki Hayden back in the day. He was able to go from American road racing to, you know, to uh, Moto GP, and that that's typically not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One, I think it's Nikki Hayden, um, you know, supremely talented rider. Two. That was a point in time when uh, AMA Pro Superbike was well-regarded and well-funded, and he had tremendous support from American Honda because Superbike sales were still strong in the U.S. Right. So he had the subsidiary pushing behind him, and he, and they had a lot of support. I wouldn't say a lot, but he had a bit of support from Japan, and he was able to go into probably the highest-level functioning factory team at the time. So... You've got a good rider with good support and a good team. Those are the three most important things. And I think that's that was the issue for Josh, was you have a good rider going into a mid-level team as the number two rider in right. that team with basically no support. And you and we saw the results. And like, you know, a lot of ways. There's a lot of different perspectives on on that situation, but one of them that I've heard is that, you know, that team viewed Josh as basically the money. He was there to bring the money to finance the whole team, and the other rider was the rider that was supposed to get the results. Hmm. And I don't know how true that is, but it's an interesting perspective at least. And that sort of thing definitely happens. And then you look at the time and the place, right? Like that's Moto2 during the Honda years, but the bikes were pretty developed. And if you weren't on a Calyx, then you weren't you just weren't going to win and you needed to have the 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 crew behind you to support you and you needed to have money and you needed to have time and you know you have to learn all these gp tracks and it's a different style of riding it's not like you can go from uh super bike or um super sport which would maybe be more analogous because right. it's, it's still a 600 motor a 600 cc motor um, but you know, it's just, it's just, it's just completely different. And there's a lot, there's a lot that happens with that. There's a lot of like, there's a big learning curve there and there's a certain amount of like just writing style that can be different. And that's one thing like I've been thinking about a lot about lately, uh, just in terms of like our own writing. Um, I have a friend who's trying to race a super bike this year. And they're having a lot of problems. They're on an R1. They're having a lot of issues, kind of like learning the bike. And just like the lap times aren't coming, the results are coming. And some of that, I think, comes down to the fact that they're a super sport rider at heart. Mm. And they ride like a super sport rider. They spend a lot of time on super sports. And a 600cc bike is not a 1,000cc bike. And, and in, in a way, it's a stepping stone. But also, the way you're going to ride those bikes at the same track is going to be very different. And that's one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about for my... My racing, uh, which is coming up way too quickly. We, really quickly. We can, we can talk about that in a second. But I've always been kind of a leader bike rider. And that's one of the things why I want to ride on a Kramer, uh, a smaller displacement machine, because I don't have some of the skill sets that, that, that I should have because I've been able to make the lap time up on the rear tire instead of the front tire. Right. And that's something I want to learn. But I'm going to go around PIR, which is a track now that I've, I've done a, 
a fair number of laps on, but I'm going to have to go about it in a completely different way because I'm on a completely different bike and, and the way to make a lap time on it's going to be completely different because of it. Right. So I, I mean, we could just go on a rabbit hole of different things, but there's a few of them for, for why I think Josh had such a hard time. That's why I said top three, Jensen. I'm trying to I'm trying to control our rabbit holes as much as I love them. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. And to be fair, I think I think yeah. Josh Heron, the rider now, is a very different person than Josh Heron, the rider in 2013. You know, that was six years ago. Yeah, that's a, that's that's quite a long time, man. Oh, sorry, no, five years ago. It was 2014. Still five years. Still five years. Especially when, you're, decade, especially when you're like 20 something years old. How old is Josh? He's he was born in 90. Wow. So he's 28. So, I mean, like, there's a big difference between your 23 and 28. Well, 29, I guess. Yeah. So, just saying. Um, but yeah, he had, a, he had a really good weekend. Tony Elias had a really good weekend. Um, it was interesting to watch the the racing in Assen because there was snow. Yeah. Alvaro Batista had another really good weekend. <laughs> so yeah, there's some some interesting things there. What did what was at the handbill show that, that caught your eye? Because I really wanted to go this year and couldn't. So I, I tripped over that eighteen hundred CC BMW again. Did you really? Dude, that fucking thing just sneaks up on you. You don't even know it's there. You're like, what the fuck is that? Um, right at your shin level. <laughs> so I think, I, I don't know if it's the same motor because it'll look the same, but Revival yeah. uh, built this bike called the Birdcage. And if you looked at it, it's basically these tiny little titanium tubes that they built as sort of like this exoskeleton frame. Did you say it's a series of tubes? Series of tubes. It's a bunch of them. <laughs> um, but basically everything is everything's around this giant motor and you know huge drivetrain um and and BMW is taking kind of an interesting uh direction by letting people build custom bikes around this massive motor it's it's I can't get over how big it is it's it's just the biggest part you can build a 10 foot long motorcycle and that motor motor will st- stick out what are your thoughts on that thing i am so I I have two minds on this because I am so intrigued by it and I also just don't care so much. It it just and I think I think I'm so intrigued because of how much I don't care. Right. Like it's the it's not quite this, but it's kind of like the train crash that you can't peel your eyes <laughs> off of. Because I look at that motor and it is so freaking big. And we've seen spy shots of what this bike is supposed to be. And, it, and it's, it's basically like a Harley with a box range. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you call that a bagger or a dresser or a tour. They tried that back in the early two thousands with the R 1200 C. Well, that thing was abysmal. Oh God. That was thing was horrible. abysmal. And I they think put it in James Bond trying to make it look sexy. And it's like, no, no. I mean, that was, that, there's a whole much to say about that. But with this, it feels like they're trying to do the heritage thing air-cooled push rod big right. boxer big displacement like an 1800 cc boxer motor is going to be pretty torquey it's going to be an interesting motor to, <laughs> to ride it's really freaking big but maybe that doesn't matter because in that application like like you you have experience a thousand pound motorcycle isn't that crazy right in that space i don't know if it's going to weigh a thousand pounds but it's going to be like little 700 pounds maybe it's going to be in pounds. that range right yeah. um 
And so you're like, okay, I kind of see what you're doing, but like, really? Here's a conversation I had with a couple of different people that are, that are in the industry, but not on the actual motorcycle side of it. Okay. Um, the innovation in the motorcycle side has sort of come to a halt. At this point, what they're doing is saying, all right, we, we've got a frame, we've got a motor, we've got wheels, we have shock and forks and handlebars and seat and tank. And that is more or less what builds a motor, you know, makes up a motorcycle. And so all these different companies are just picking up either a bigger motor or smaller motor or the super, you know, supercharged motor or, you know, an Olin suspension or Brembo brakes. But there's nothing nothing and i mean this truly my in the in the sense of the word there was nothing in that entire space of custom bikes short of one front wheel drive sci-fi looking thing which was kind of cool i've seen that that was that's, super that's rad but there was nothing else really that made you go oh wow yeah that's a that's a cool new way of looking at what a motorcycle should be built like you know it's just newer materials uh a, sort of a different paint different style of frame, different style of wheels. Uh, I've noticed a lot of the custom bikes are going from, you know, what used to be the wide rear tire to super narrow, very tall tires, front and back, or wheels, I should say. Yeah. Which is a cool look. It kind of reminds me of like those old, you know, what do they call them, like board trackers? The old, yeah. yeah. So they're kind of going for that look now. And that's certainly a neat look. There was a, a revival, another revival bike. The It was called, I think it was called the Six basically a, a really super custom thing that's designed around a uh, Honda CBX motor, an inline six motor. And again, really low, really long. Yeah, I'm looking at it. That, uh, looks, that looks pretty cool. Super cool looking in person. It just, it, it looks like rolling art. I just want to like put it in the middle of the living room and stare at it. But from what I understand, it actually works. Um, but, you know, I, I think as an enthusiast, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a point where it's like, all right, I, that's so cool. I've seen all these different versions of what a motorcycle should look like, but I haven't seen anything that was like brand new, just a completely new idea that would just knock your socks off. There wasn't a new style of suspension. There isn't a new style of, you know, uh, transmission or anything like that. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping and waiting. And that's where I was excited when, you know, Alta had come out back in the day. Um, and there are a couple of electric customs which were really neat looking so I'll, I'll give those guys big kudos but other than that same old same old just you know newer shinier neater or more neat materials that they're using uh you know a lot of people are going for lightweight which is cool um i saw a triumph thruxton that had a supercharger strap to it but it looked like it was just right out of the factory built like that so that was kind of neat uh i don't i don't remember what the supercharger brand was but just looking at the bike i kept staring at it like why did somebody park a Thruxton 1200 here. What's the point of this bike? And the fact that I didn't see it until like the second or third minute of staring at it blew my mind. Like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. It looks bone stock. Good job making it look like it belongs on it. Yeah. Um, a couple of Walt Siegel bikes that always make me giggle. That's just pretty. I want to. I want to be around them all the time. I saw a an e bike that the frame was like this gold copper color, and I took a picture of it. Like, I need this. I need this right now. <laughs> I would commute in the city all day long with that, with my gold chain. You have, you have simple pleasures. Simple pleasures, man. Uh, ate a lot of good food, drank a lot of good drinks, talked to a lot of really cool people, uh, like, you know, the people at uh, Piaggio North America, some people at Ducati, um, 
Got to hang out with the comedian Alonzo Bowden for a couple of minutes. He's super neat. Guy's bigger than life. He's so big. He's a big dude. He's super big, but he's like, he's proportionately big. So like his head's big, but his shoulders are also like four feet wide. He's just, he's just a big man. If you look at him from afar, it doesn't look that big because he's so proportionate. And then I'm six foot one and I walk up to him like, wow, this guy's a time and a half my size. Uh, but super cool guy. Uh, guy Martin that I already named. And then I got to go check out the behind the scenes of the media center. That was, that was super neat for me. Cause I mean, I've been watching motorsports for decades and decades. So to be back there and watch the, you know, all the different magazines from Europe and America doing their thing. It's like, holy shit. I, this is what I read when I was a kid. Yeah. So that was, that's the kind of stuff that kind of gets me a little bit uh, geeked out to, to watch the behind the scenes of how they do this stuff. <clears throat> we got to go check out the Ducati paddock. That was neat. To see those bikes and all the science pit and box, all the not paddock, pit oh, box. sorry, pit box, yeah, a lot of engineers, yeah, I'd say more engineers than it. mechanics. That's a lot of a lot of crazy science and math happening behind the scenes to make that extremely complicated looking machine work. Yeah, all attached to one rider. Well, two riders. Well, I mean, I'm talking a machine. Yeah, um, yeah. but that's definitely that's that's really really neat to be back there and see how incredibly clean and organized that pit box is. And how much care they take. And I mean, to watch the engineers, I mean, we're there just as tourists checking it out and like giggling and trying to see if we can sneak a photo. But those guys are at work. It's proper and professionalism. It's serious business. Yeah. So kudos to all those people that, that go around the world. And every time I've gone to a GP, this is my third GP race that I've gone to in the last two years. And every time I watch this, the only thing that I have in my head is I think because my wife is an executive assistant, is who deals with the logistic nightmare of moving these teams around the world. Dorna. Is it all Dorna? Yes. I mean, they've got it pretty... I mean, I understand that MotoGP is literally a traveling circus. Yeah. Like, I, I think back to, like, Barnum and Bainey. Bainey? Bailey? Bailey. 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 Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Barnum and Bailey. Times, you know, like, they have the little... Um, wagon coaches with the tigers in it and you know they're pulling, <laughs> elephants yeah and the elephants are walking like they're making like a parade through the town kind of thing MotoGP is very much the same way and they've just got it really figured out in terms of how to build up a little town right you know wherever they go they got was it 19 circuits on the calendar this year hmm. um 18 or 19 i can't remember off the top of my head last year was 18 i think we added someone this year um but they've, they've figured out a way of like to create a little village, a little town at each one of these tracks that they go to. And, you know, it all gets broken down really easily and it all can be packed in these, you know, what they call the flyaway races, which are the ones that aren't in Europe. Hmm. All of it comes in two giant 747s that Dorna rents or owns. Only two of them for the whole thing? For the whole thing. And so wow. like every team has like a weight allotment and they have like a number of containers that they can have right so you'll see them when the, at the end of the day like they're breaking things down they're putting them in these very specific boxes and i was at the track the monday afterwards and some of those containers are still there hmm. and you can see them like loading it up and they put the bmw pace car on a proper little sled thing and it's got the 20 straps holding it down and then the <laughs> bike goes on top of it so that pace car is the same car they use for the yeah, entire circuit they fly it around oh man, man i figured they would just come to america and they're a local bmw dealership has to you would think they'd figure that out <laughs> Uh, that's an additional. But it's all, but it's all painted. I mean, that that car's like, I wouldn't say it's a proper race car, but that car is not it's, stock, dude. It makes some gnarly noise when it goes down yeah, the track. It's doing the business. It's yeah. doing the beans. So, um, 
it's interesting to see how they how they do all that. But Dorna handles a lot of the logistics of getting the teams everywhere that they need to go from from point to point, uh, at least on the flyways. Now, in Europe, a lot of it is done by truck drivers, right. and that's more team centric. So they have, but also like the truck driver, that tractor trailer basically turns into a hospitality unit. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's kind of crazy how it all how it all comes together. They actually have multiple tractor trailers. There's like one for the for the bikes and the team. And then there's one that kind of turns into the hospitality suite. If you haven't been to a European round, you need to do it. It's unbelievable. I went yeah. to Valencia and I mean, I think Ducati had like four, maybe five tractor trailers. And you're right, one of them, everything's much tighter. You go to Austin and you just forget how big it is in Austin. And they're sort of spread out a little bit. But Valencia, I think you could fit four Valencias in Coda. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Austin's a really big track. Silverstone's a really big track. Um, I'm trying to think what other what other venue is physically large. Indy is physically large. But Austin is the closest we get that I've seen um, in the U.S. to getting to what a European round is like. We went to Indy. We went to Laguna. It definitely had more of an American feel. But Austin gets, I'd say, like 80% of what the atmosphere and what the paddock is like in terms of what it's, you know, the level is in Europe. Right. But you go to Europe and man, the paddock's packed and you have the hospitality suites are even more robust. And <laughs> yeah. You go to uh, Austria for a round. I mean, Red Bull builds like a whole two-story building basically. Wow. For the KTM team, or I should say KTM builds the, the building, the Red Bull KTM. But it's just next level. And, you know, it, it's kind of, I think it is a bucket list item to experience GP race in Europe because you will get something that that is more than if you were at the flyway races as they call it and um, yeah it's interesting it's good stuff what would you say it costs for a team to run a season uh, not like standing like Ducati, riders and, and equipment I mean the the factory the factory teams are spending close 50 million dollars and up wow and that that includes bike development so that's that's the starting price now you know you can go all the way down the paddock you know we can pull up a list of names and we can probably make a pretty big stratification on who's spending what you know Tectois as a well Tectois is now kind of more of a KTM satellite team than they were when they were with Yamaha when there was just kind of like a more formal relationship but you know even then you're probably talking i don't know 5 million dollar operating budget outside of rider contracts well, that sounds a little high. That's, that's actually that's low to me. It's it, I can't believe it. I want to say it's like seven with rider contracts, five to seven with rider contracts. But I mean, to lease a GP bikes between one and two million euro. So where's that money coming from for sponsors? Is it all strictly sponsor sponsors and money, money laundering? <laughs> <laughs> you make the joke, but like eh, maybe <laughs> some of it. Is I don't. Let, let's see how many how many teams are on the grid? How many teams total in the entire paddock? Let's say like a hundred, right? There's got to be at least one that's a money There's a lot operation. of money, man. That's a lot of money. Just, a lot of money to just blow. I don't know. I have a very cynical thing on that sometimes. They're like, how do you make a lot of money in MotoGP? Or it's like, how do you make a bit of money in MotoGP? And the joke's always like, start with a lot of money. I'm like, that's no, true. Launder a lot of money. <laughs> launder a lot of money. So at, at what point do you think these riders actually get paid to race motorcycles? Because everyone that I've mean? talked to that's racing at amateur level, they're paying to do all this. So every, I'd say just about every amateur racer is is more or less by the time you add up all the expenses they're footing the bill to some extent maybe there's some guys breaking even there might be a couple guys like i'm thinking like i don't quite know andy's situation but you know he does have sponsors he's got um 
Rockstar and Fox. I don't think those deals cover all of his racing, though. I could be wrong. Yeah. But you think of him, he's he's you know one of the fastest guys in Oregon. And I'm trying to think what the and there's probably guys like him throughout the country that have similar situations, but they're right at that kind of that threshold of break even. Right. And then you go into Moto America and like it resets itself. And I think the only people making a buck in Moto America are the guys on the big teams. And you know, truly probably on the factory teams. There's probably some guys break there's probably a let's say in Moto America Superbike. How big is that grid? I don't know how big the grid is to make to make like a real fair assessment, but let's say ten riders are breaking even, and out of them, let's say half are probably making like a decent profit that you can say like that's a good salary. Hmm. And then it's only the guys on the factory bikes that are making any sort of salary that makes sense in terms of being able to live after the age of thirty. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. I mean, you it's know? such a grueling environment. Because because understand too, like this is this is the thing that always drives me a little crazy. And and you know I've talked about it before, like especially talking in terms of like Ben Spees and some of these other riders where you know they have their careers kind of cut short. You know, you have one skill. A lot of these guys are not going to school. Right they're home, they're homeschooled. Right, so they have no education. They have nothing to fall back on. They have no skill set for other than knowing how to ride a motorcycle really fast. So if that's the case, you have a really narrow window. To basically make all the money you're ever going to make in your entire life. And that's somewhere between the age of, if you're lucky, 18 to 35. And, um, ooh, that beeps. That beeps me that we might make it through the podcast without running out of batteries. Bong, bong, bong. But, um, and that's, and that's like the, at the outset, you know, that's like the, at the outer limits. And the reality is, is like you're not going to be, you know, getting a really good paycheck when you're 18. You're probably going to have to take a while to come into your prime. You're probably not going to be like really competitive until like you're 24. Right. And it's a little bit of an ask to think that you're going to be racing motorcycles well past your 30s. So now that you, you know, if it's really 24 to 30, now you have six years to make all the all money you're going to make your entire yeah. life. And that's really fucking hard, man. Um, you know, some of these guys that can speak intelligently and, and have a deep appreciation and have a technical mind. You know, they can go on and do commentating jobs. They can do, you can probably kind of hang on for a year or two as a test rider. You might be able to get a job inside a factory in a racing department or mm-hmm. media or marketing or whatever it is. And, you know, we've definitely seen racers, you know, post racing career finding kind of more um, desk type jobs that are inside racing or inside the sport. So I don't want to like say like you, you're not going to make any money afterwards, but for a lot of people, it's like you hang up your leathers and and then what? Yeah, what's what's your next? What is next? I mean, hopefully you've made enough money where someone's helped you right. invest it. And that's where I talk about the GP riders. Well, if you're not investing your money wisely, you know, I bring up Ben Spees because you know he basically lost a million dollars because of a contract issue. Yeah, you know, poorly negotiated. You know, broke broke the terms of contract, got a million dollar penalty. And you're like, man, like if you're only you know, if you only make, let's say, $10 million your entire GP career, like cumulatively, you just lost 10% of your of your, of your little nest egg there. That's yeah, a lot, man. That's a lot, a lot. And that's, and that's a guy who's at the top of his game and the top of the, you know, the top series and a factory team, you know, going, you know, Mach 10 on it. What about the guy that's going Mach 1, you know, who's on a satellite team kind of backmarking it? You know, a lot of those guys are paying for rides. You know, even in GP, we have some issues with riders paying for rides and what that means because you know 
there's a little bit of like it's an investment like hey i'll pay two hundred thousand dollars to the team to be able to ride for it but that's because i'm bringing five hundred thousand dollars in personal sponsorship money with me right so you know my my leathers and my helmet and my um you know sunglass contracts they make sense like i'm a platform basically at that point so you kind of get like the business sense of it it makes sense I, i should say from a business perspective but like man that's tough. It's super, super tough. Um, yeah, and then you get into like Superbike and GP level and, you know. Um, We've always talked about the jump from, you know, let's talk from Moto3 to Moto2 to GP, MotoGP itself. Um, and it seems like such a huge leap. You know, if you're the top rider in Moto3 and you can somehow make it to Moto2, if that translates, then you're sort of, you know, you're back at the bottom of that bucket typically. Well, yes and no, right? I mean, there's a couple things going on. And I think one of the things that's really good now with Triumph powering the Moto2 series, that makes Moto2, going into Moto2 make a lot of sense. One of the problems with Moto2 when it was the Honda, after a couple of years, people were realizing like, hey, this series isn't preparing riders for MotoGP. Hmm. This is just wasting people's time. It's a really interesting class. There's been some good racing. You know, there's... It's good from a fan perspective, but in terms of rider development, in terms of mechanic development, you want to bring mechanics through and make them. There is no electronics to set up. Hmm. And right now, that's the whole game in GP. So there was that push. That was one of the things with Jack Miller. Get him out of Moto3 as soon as possible. Put him in a MotoGP team. Put him in a satellite team where there's no pressure to get results and just say, learn. Right. Learn how to ride a MotoGP bike. Learn how to ride a motorcycle that makes 280, 290, 300 horsepower. Learn how to set up the suspension on that. Learn how to adjust your riding style to that. Learn how to work with an electronics guru who can help set up the bike and come up with electronic strategies for you and what that means. And then we'll bring you into the satellite team and then we'll bring you, you know, think about you for a factory team. And that's what basically Ducati's done with Jack Miller. And I think the hope is that the, now that the Triumphs have, uh, the three cylinders powering motor too. That's a seven six five motor. Um, it's got a little bit more more power under the hood. It has an electron electronic. It has an electronic. Whew, let me try that again. It has an electronics package. So you have that aspect now that that is being learned. It's not very robust. Right. It's definitely kind of dumbed down compared to what's going on in GP. But at least it's there, and you can start understanding like, okay, well, this is what we've got to do here, and we've got the squiggly lines, and we'll figure out what those mean. So hopefully that'll make it more of a stepping stone. But um, I've totally forgotten your question. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about the you know the the jump from three to two to one and how they translate. Like how 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 do they transition? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Because you're saying like you know you get to the top of Moto three and then you go into Moto two and you kind right. of get screwed all over again. I mean, yes and no. Like if you're a top level Moto three rider, you're going to get picked up by a top level Moto two team. You know like like attracts like and it's the same thing like mark marquez didn't start out at the bottom of the rung in moto gp no uh when he came through moto 2 in fact he he had a pipeline all the way through moto 3 to well 125 gp into um you know moto gp so you know there there is that and that's and that's always like there's like a chicken and the egg thing there do i do are you doing better because you're on you know the best team with the best equipment or are you doing well because you're the best rider or you're doing well because you're both? And I think there's a struggle because I think there's a lot of 
there's only so many teams that are like the preferred ride. And then there's, but I think there's more talent than there are teams. So then you get kind of these diamonds in the rough a little bit. Right. And I think Johan Zarka was one of those diamonds in the rough. <laughs> he was, absolutely. Um, not that like he went completely unnoticed, but he wasn't the star that, that Mark Marquez was or, or you can make the argument that Alex Marquez isn't now. Like there's always been a lot of pressure put on Alex Marquez to be like his brother. And you have Mark Marquez saying that Alex is faster than him. And the results really haven't been there for the majority of races for Alex Marquez. It's a bit of a crasher, a bit, a bit unreliable. And you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, like he's got the right last name and he's got the right people around him, but he's not his brother. And there's probably about five other guys I would give the hat tip to before him, hmm. but he's in the pipeline. And you can look at the reverse of that. Someone like Romano Fanati, tremendously talented, but because of his own stupidity and his own bad actions, he's he's out of the pipeline now. Right. So, you know, when he gets a good result, you're going to be like, that is 100% his talent right there. And I'm not saying he's on a bad team, but he's not on the best team. He's not on a team that's probably the same level of his talent, but there's a reason for that. And so there's a little bit of that kind of, you got to have it all working for you. But I think the paddock gets its its preferred um people and those tend to to get into a pipeline or a track that keeps them in the preferred state until they become tainted somehow and then they get kind of kicked out of the system and then it takes a while for them to get to get found i think alvaro bautista is a great example who i've always thought he was a really underrated rider underrated rider try to say that three times fast underrated rider underrated rider underrated rider okay that was pretty good yeah i had to learn his language <laughs> red leather yellow leather <laughs> um but i've always i've always rated him or i've always thought that he was underrated and you know he was on the suzuki you know rizla suzuki back when suzuki uh the first time i should say i don't know that wasn't the first time what am i how am i articulating this well he was on the suzuki factory team within that wasn't a very good factory team to be on <laughs> and the results weren't really there and that bike never really went anywhere and that was like early days of moto gp and then he went into other teams and he had kind of mixed results and you know was on the ducati for a little while and didn't really no one really thought anything and finally it was to that point of well so long buddy we don't have any we don't have any seats for you moto gp anymore i guess you're gonna have to go slum it in world superbike but ducati definitely saw the value i was like hey no alvaro is still a fast guy we're going to put him on our factory bike and lo and behold, he's blowing it out of the water now for 11, you know, race wins in a row. It's the best start to a world Superbike season ever. I don't know if it's the longest winning streak ever, but I think it's probably the longest from the start of a season. Uh, he's definitely doing something. right. And, and no one looks like they're going to really be able to touch him. And yeah, you can say that the Panigale V4 is an amazing bike and it's kind of, you know, blowing the, the class out of the water. But you know, where's his teammate? I was going to say the other guys on bike just like that on the grid. <laughs> so and like Chaz has some issues, and I'll and I'll kind of give you that. But I'm like, eighty percent of that results the bike. Alvaro's the other twenty percent. Alvaro's was taking that bike from being a top four, top five contender, podium contender, and making it a not only a race winner, but a winning, dominating, blowing the competition out of the water bike. Yeah, and, and I think that was the same with Johnny Ray. The Kawasaki's good. Jonathan Ray is a really good talent. Jonathan Ray is a MotoGP level talent who just never got that chance. He never quite got into that pipeline. He never had anyone believe in him. He never had the support behind him. He never had the opportunity to go into a factory team and 
ended up staying in World Superbike where he's he's truthfully outclassing a lot of his his competitors. So it's really tough. Like it's it's so much more uh, than just race results. Like you know, you'd think racing is like this real uh, meritocracy because it's just measured by a stopwatch, and that's really <laughs> not the case. Like passport plays a huge factor in it. Who you know plays a huge factor into it. Who your team is, what equipment you're on. You can be the best rider in the world and be on a shit bike and not get anywhere. That's true. So, or you, I mean. And we've seen it sometimes. You can be like Casey Stoner, an amazing talent on a bike with lots of issues and still overcome it. And that kind of helps elevate you back into the status. I don't think anyone was really rating Casey Stoner very highly until he started putting wins up on the board on the Ducati <laughs> and then hopped over to Repsol and blew everyone out of the water. And then other people tried to jump on the Ducati and realized what a fucking pig that was. And they're like, oh, wow. How did you win races on this thing? How did you win a championship on this thing? And we see it, you know, and then he goes to Honda and you're like, I don't think anyone can stop him. I don't think it matters what he rides. Yeah. And you're like, wow, what a talent he was. And then he leaves the sport and we're going to sit there and always wonder, was he the greatest of all time? I don't know. I think Casey, I truthfully, I think Casey Stoner, hmm, I'm going to take that back for just a second. I'll be really curious to see where Mark Marquez happens. Yeah. I would love, like, my fantasy would be Rossi in the prime, yep. Casey in his prime, and Mark in his prime. Oh, that would be but, such a fun little thing to watch. I think if you want to have a conversation about greatest of all time, I think there's a lot of reasons why you can say Mark or sorry, say Valentino Rossi, just looking at like the dynasty of racing that he's been in. Yeah. But I do think talent wise, like Casey Stoner has to be in your top five of most talented people ever on a, on a motorcycle racing a motorcycle. The guy just wanted to go fishing, man. You just want to go fishing. Like, I just, just want to go fishing, and he happened like, to know how to ride a motorcycle really, I, really, really well. I kind of, I kind of get it, but <laughs> I kind of like also wish he was still here racing because I think MotoGP would be super fascinating with Casey Stoner in the mix. Um, how old is he now? That's a good question. Um, I feel like he's not far 31, from Thirty-one, if I had to guess. Thirty-three. Let's close. Oh, he's not that old. Um, but he's stoked on life. He's, he, and that's the thing. He's got all the money he needs. He went out on top. I just, he just, he definitely had two or three more championships win, you know, championship wins possible in, in his career, if not more. And, uh, man, it's unfortunate. I always wonder about the politics of, of, you know, that level of racing, you know, the GP side and, you know, a rider's ability to fill seats. If you're going to talk about just popularity contest, Stoner was never really that popular until he no. proved that he could do it. I think, and even then, it was still the Rossi show. You know, everybody was there to see Rossi. Uh, even in Austin, you know, you just see a lot of bright yellow hats and wigs, and you know, Marquez is starting to pick up a pretty good following now. Yeah, I would say um, this year really struck me about how many. I would say <clears throat> the people staying outside Mark's garage versus the people standing out Valentino's garage were. About even, and that yeah, hasn't year, always been the case. Last year it wasn't like that. Last year yeah. it was like two to one. Yeah, uh, Rossi to Marquez, which is funny too, because I think Rossi's having a really good season this year. He's looking really strong. Dude, he's rock solid. It's amazing to watch him ride. Yeah. Um, are we are we giving any spoilers away from this race? I have to imagine by the time this comes out, people have watched it. Yeah, I got to get this show out pretty quick, don't I? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out when we put out the last show, so I'll probably get this out next day or two. We can give some spoilers. It's Wednesday already. Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you haven't watched it by now. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's on you. I'm sorry. Does the internet have to wait for you to get your TiVo going? How surprised were you at Marquez's flop? Super surprised. Um, It just looked like his front end just stopped playing. It's the most unforced error. It's one of those things that... Uh, it's such an unforced error that it makes me just kind of go, something had to happen. Something had to, I don't think he was pushing that hard. You know, he, he was telling people that he wasn't pushing hard. The data looked exactly the did the lap before. There's like no explanation for it. We don't know what's going on. And it's right. kind of like that doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. It didn't look, I mean, it, it, you it don't, didn't look exciting. It looked like literally the front end just was like, nah. The classic line I, I heard from Jason Pridmore, I've never seen a motorcycle crash itself. You know? <laughs> that is the truth. Um, so, you know, did his tire go off? Did he push too hard? Did he have a mechanical problem? Did he lose concentration? Was it the wind? Was it a bump? You know, something had to happen. And I don't know what that is. Um, Honda has had a tremendous number of uh, mechanical issues this season. That's what they were announcing right before he went down. They were talking about Lorenzo's bike having some kind of a transmission issue. Yeah, and um, uh, Mark had an issue in Argentina where the chain came off the the, uh, the bike. So there's a bit of talk that maybe the swing arm is has too much flex in it, hmm. and so it's it's um, deflecting at an angle that is so great that it's causing the chain to come off the sprocket. Uh, that didn't seem to be the case for market. Like the front end tucked. There's some talk that maybe there's an electronics issue. Maybe the bike cut out. Um, I mean, truthfully, we'll probably never really know because that's the kind of thing that Repsol Honda will never disclose. Yeah, I was going to ask if they're ever going to release that kind of information. No, probably not. They may say there's a mechanical issue of some undisclosed origin. The line that we were getting was it's uh, at the end of um, the race day was it's. Uh, some sort of mechanical issue. Well, they don't really know what it is, but they know it wasn't the chain. Huh. So, take that for what it is. And he couldn't get the bike restarted. I mean, we've seen no, him go down and be able to bump start the bike But again. it did sound like the bike was kind of turning over. If you listen to the onboard footage, you can hear the motor kind of go, but not... I mean, I, mean, I don't know. I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. All I know is um, it... it it takes the championship back to zero. Davi takes the lead in the championship by four points. They go to Hareth with uh, f- the top four riders, I think, are within nine points of each say, other. I the spread is real thin. So whoever, it's not whoever wins Hareth starts winning the championship, but, you know, it's going to be pretty close for the next two, three races, you know, if the same names are on the podium each time. So it's yeah. going to take a little while for someone to eke out a lead. So... That'll be interesting to watch. That's going to make the next few rounds really interesting to to be spectators for, and I think that's good for the sport. Yeah. Um, it's not so great for Mark Marquez, but that's always been the joke: is you know who who on the grid can beat Mark Marquez right now? And you're like, well, there's definitely some riders that can give him a run for his money. But at the end of the day, Mark Marquez's biggest competitor is himself. Himself, who, yeah. Who can beat him? Mark Marquez. That's right. And you know, as we saw in Austin, that was I. I think personally, I think Mark Marquez beat himself that weekend. Whether that's the team or the bike or him as a rider, but it's a whole, the whole thing's a package. So there was a very different Mark Marquez in Austin this year than last year. Last year during practice and qualifying, he was kind of a, he was really wild. And this year it seemed to be the opposite. You know, he, he didn't crash a bunch uh, and kind of go crazy during qualifying. 
but then to watch him crash during the race. I mean, it, I was at the Ducati, the Desmo Owners Club uh, box, watching it with all these Ducati, you know, Ducati fans. And when he went down, I, I, it was interesting to see the majority of people there kind of go, "Oh no!" Like, you know, you don't, you never want to just see somebody go down. There was, you know, there was cheering that, "Yay, Ducati's going to get some extra points out of this," but. Uh, it wasn't what people were expecting. It took everybody aback a bit. Yeah, I was in the Alpine Stars uh, hospitality, and there was definitely people who yelled out. Oh, I'm out, sure that who were like, "Yeah!" And then I think they realized who they were, and they uh, got in the wrong quiet. room. In the wrong room. <laughs> so they're like, "Oh no, wait, who was he supposed to?" Oh shoot! Oh shoot! Jonas. Um, Cal Crutchlow had a bad day. Cal Crutchlow had a bad day. Jorge Lorenzo had a bad day. Yeah. Jorge's bike just looked like he just parked it. He was like, I'm done with this thing. Yeah. He just stopped working. Yeah. It looked it, it looked like a cutout. Yeah. Um, he definitely had a mechanical issue. So that's very strange to very, very strange to see that happening. Um, but it was a good race. If you haven't watched it, sit down. Well, we've ruined it for you. Yeah, we've ruined it. It's completely Don't bother. But it is a good race to watch. Those of you who watch it are, are probably yelling into your your stereos right now about how much fun it was. I, I thought, I mean, here's the thing, right? The expectation for uh, the America's GP is that it's going to be the Mark Marquez show, that it's going to be a snoozer, that it's yeah. going to be a race that you're watching for second place. And that's no fun. And we got the exact opposite of that. So that's great. Alex Renz wrote an amazing race. Um, Jack Miller <laughs> was hilarious in the post-race uh, press conference. Uh, Valentino Rossi on the box. I mean, it's got a lot of, a lot of positives there. It yeah. was really cool. So <laughs> I, I think that's good. I think that helps uh, inject some enthusiasm for the American round. I'm always a little worried right now about the the state of the American round on the MotoGP calendar. We don't see for the last two three years now, while negotiations have been going on. We haven't seen any attendance figures published. We don't hear any talk about contract renewal, like a multi-year contract renewal with the Circuit of the Americas. There's a lot of question marks on its um, financing that it, now that it has less uh, local and uh, government support. And, you know, if a calendar came out for 2020 or 2021 that didn't have Austin on it, it wouldn't surprise me. It'd be a tragedy, and I'd want to know what the heck was going on. But it wouldn't surprise me. We could have a race in Indy. We could have a race in Mexico City. I don't know how likely that is because there's a lot of issues with that. But, you know, they I could see them skipping it for a year. If, if things get wonky with the track, there's a lot of issues right now with the track surface. I was out there shooting. I shot three sessions during the race weekend. And one of them was at turn two. Turn two is like watching someone go down a staircase. It drops, doesn't it? It, it has a drop. And it's right when the bike's flicking over onto its side. Right. Um, so it's a really great opportunity to disrupt the chassis and that, and then, you know, it's Skittles. Uh, I was out there Monday after the race, uh, with Ronnie Skaysbrook. He was out there testing his Pike's Peak bike, uh, with Aprilia. And I was talking to him and he was talking about going through, what was it? Uh, the stadium section and the carousel. So that's turn 16, 17, 18 and 14, 13 and 14, maybe. Hmm. And he's like, you know, you get the bike leaned over. It's on this knee. You can literally look across the asphalt and see the undulations. You can see the bumps. It's not just like, oh, hey, there's a bump here. There's a bump there. It's like someone threw a rock into a still pond and the ripples have radiated out. That's like how it is with the track. You just have all these rolling kind of bumps. Have they explained why in such a young track it's already like this? Uh, the prevailing theory is there's a lot of clay in the soil. And so every time we have a big rain, the earth kind of shifts. And the track is shifting on top of it. There mm -hmm. wasn't really anything done to 
to solidify the ground beneath the track. We just kind of paved right over it. It was really funny, actually. Jack Miller was talking about it in the press conference because everyone's like, oh, what do you think about the bumps? And they're like, I don't know. It's just really bumpy. And then Jack's like, I can't do an Australian accent, but he's like, yeah, you know, uh, there's just way too much clay in the soil here and it's just shifting. And you're like, oh, wait. Yeah, you're, you're the son of a miner, aren't you? <laughs> Guy knows his dirt. He knows his earth. Yeah, you know, he's not just some lamb. But it was like a really like precise answer. And you're like, oh, yeah, son of a miner. Okay. Yeah, he's got a little. It sounds like, like an exclamation. Ah, who? son of a miner. You know dirt. Not a, not a miner, but a miner. Like, like digs in the earth. Like a, like a M-I-N-E-R. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I don't know what that leaves for the circuit. It's really expensive to repave a circuit. And that, that doesn't big, even, especially one that big, and that huge. just fixes the problem short term. You haven't, you know, addressed the whole like, hey, the Earth is still moving thing. So I don't know what they do to fix the circuit. I don't know what they do to make it right, but it's super bumpy. And you watch those, the footage of them going down the back straight, and you see how much head shake. You see how crazy those bikes are going. You can't not fix it, you know. No, so it's going to be unsafe at some point, if not already. And I can't imagine the cars can't go through that stuff too. So, you know, if you want to keep hosting Formula One, you're going to have to do something. So I don't know. I'll be curious to see what happens from that. I remember watching uh, Mark Marquez and qualifying, and I think his rear tire touched a little bit of wet in that same back oh, straight. Yeah. And I mean, he almost lost that going straight. Yeah. Because you're hydroplaning at that point. Crazy looking. That or looked aquaplaning, nuts. as our European colleagues aquaplaning, would say. Aquaplaning. That's right. Um, yeah, it was very interesting. It was an interesting race. Uh, I had an interesting weekend myself running around herding cats. Like you said, we went into the Ducati uh, box. That was really cool to that see. Was super cool. Uh, I got to spend some time in the KTM box talking to the head of their MotoGP program and the head of their racing program. Um, they had a little special thing for the American press, which was really interesting to see what they're doing there. There's a lot of rumors that um, they've just committed themselves to another five years in the paddock. Wow. Um which was a question I would have liked to have asked their uh, people if someone had decided not to ask really stupid questions ahead of me. <laughs> That's like a little inside baseball on journalism. Here, here's right. Pitt is the head of racing, whether it's motocross, MotoGP, whatever it is. He, he's the dude. And so we only had like 10 minutes with him. Okay. And so, and we knew we only had 10 minutes. So you're like, you know, you get your questions in early. And one of my colleagues like wanted to like keep wasting time with Sebastian Reese. And he's the head of the MotoGP program. We're talking MotoGP bike stuff. And then Pitt comes in and was like, oh, hey, we should probably stop for a second because we got Pitt for only a, a short amount of time. And so we have, you know, one colleague asks a few questions. And then another colleague, like, kind of like interjects and like shifts the conversation back to Sebastian. You're like, you know, you've, we've only got like maybe five more minutes with this guy. Maybe we should focus our questions with him. <laughs> and it's like some stupid question like, how is the MotoGP bike frame different from Super Duke frame? You're like, well, they're both made out of steel tubes. That's about the only thing they have in common with each other. Like, obviously. And then, you know, that's the whole thing. I'm just bitter because I had a bunch of questions and I get to ask them. <laughs> you know, you just, it's not easy being a journalist, Jensen. You have many years of practice. But I did get to uh, ask a lot of questions on Saturday night because I was at a dinner with um, Ducati, with Claudio Domenicali, oh, Jason nice. Chinook, and uh, Francesco Melicia from, uh, he's the uh, head of Ducati's sales and marketing. Uh, we had a really nice dinner with a few journalists and um, the American team and just we got to talk a lot of really cool things. This is all off the records. So I don't want to talk too much about it, but right. um, really interesting to kind of see like, like Claudio had like a, he gave like a 10 minute dissertation on 
the advantages of Desmo Sedici valve trains versus pneumatic drives versus spring drive. Uh, so it was kind of cool to like watch him like geek out about it and, and learn some things because that guy's probably forgotten more about motorcycles than I'll ever learn. He he is he is in depth, isn't he? Um, but it's interesting to see. Um, uh, you know, we had a lot of conversation about like where the industry's headed. Uh, you know what the trends are. What the heck is going on in the U.S. right now? Because you know, as we saw, like the European registrations are up ten percent. That's good news. That's good news for them. Yeah. Now, some of that is a little bit of bump from Euro three. This was last, sorry, twenty eighteen was the last year that the Euro three bikes could be sold hmm. uh, under like a special provision. So some of those registrations could mm-hmm. be, you know, you've worked at a dealership. You know how registrations sometimes aren't registrations. Listen, sometimes they get registered a little ahead of time. Yeah. Or sometimes they get registered a little later to help you with your fiscal year numbers. Yeah. They're a little fudge in the numbers. That's that's one of the little ways dealers. The old kinda, shell game, you know? The little slide of hand on us. That's right. Do we need to get out of here to go get a burger? I think we're beyond burger hour. Are we really? Yeah, because it's only it's it's a quarter till seven and we're done at seven. Oh. So we can always go grab something else. Nuts. It just won't be our fa- our favorite burger, the burger Bur- of the show. Burger of the show. Tell me, what's the burger of the show? It's called Hit the Spot. We talked about this last episode. We did. And it did hit the spot. It's very good. It's so good. We it's, can get there in 15 minutes, can't we? I mean, are we two, in, two up on the going? Uh, nuts. All right, well, let's just keep talking. Uh, about BCS. We'll, we'll find something around here. Um, I got no shortage of stuff in the fridge, truthfully. Unless you want to get dinner. No, okay. I'm good. Um... So that was interesting, and uh, then I got to hang out Monday uh, at the track while Aprilia uh, was doing a little testing day. We had some good talk about tires with Pirelli. Keep an eye out for that on the Motor Podcast. It'll yep. probably come out in a couple days. Um, did you get to see the uh, their Pikes Peak bike? I got to see it. I did. Yeah. It looks like an RSV4 with a handlebar. Yeah. It's, it, so they took a Tuono, and they slapped an RSV4 uh, plastics on it, basically race plastics on it. Yeah. That. If you looked at it, they had to find out find a different spot to mount it on the upper. Um, but super cool looking bike. Uh, they fired it up for us. Got the full exhaust on there, and their the the gearing on it is nuts. It's for the mountain. Yeah, I think that bike will top out at like 130 miles an hour. Uh, 150 probably. Really? I think is how fast you get going there. Yeah, still um, though. Yeah, definitely. Um, you you can see there. They're all scratching their heads at Ducati's little hint about what's going to happen. So they're like, all right, we better come out guns blazing. And I thought I was going to get information on that this weekend, and I didn't. People were super secretive about it. They've been really good job on that. So kudos to them. The Bothan Spy Network is very robust, though. Yeah. I will find a way. (laughs) Challenge accepted, Ducati. I'm going to have to go dumpster diving in Cupertino, I think. Mountain View. They moved. They moved their headquarters. I probably should figure that out. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting what's going on. Uh, I'll be very curious to see what shows up at Pikes Peak. I was told by a friend that since I was there on a media pass, I should have gone to the post race um, questionnaire. Oh, you should have. Yeah, yeah, and just keep saying brap talk. <laughs> So, hey Marquez, um, yeah, have be, you have you ever heard of Brap Talk? That'd be a great um, way for us to never get I a basically, press I was like, hey, again. you know, if you want me to just get banned from any Dorna event for it the rest of my life, it would be just you. I would be banned as well. I would just be like, oh, I'm here with Bonnie Air Group. I'd <laughs> <laughs> save asphalt and rubber. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't do that. No. 
He wanted me to take my shirt off, maybe even. Oh my god! You know, just stand there with my Middle Eastern uh, Persian rug. It's funny because the the press conference is run by um, a woman named uh, Frenay, and she don't take no grief from nobody. She would have beat your ass, <laughs> and I would not feel bad for you. Um, yeah. So looking ahead, um, I think, I think. Uh, I think we've got one more episode before I start racing. Uh, I spent the better part of today putting out fires on that, but it sounds like the bike's running. Nice. And I got a bunch of parts and stuff showing up, and we're just about getting ready there. But I'm You kind got of, your suit already? I got my suit. Uh, have you situated your gloves and boots yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, although I need new boots, so I might, um, I might call up Dainese and get some new boots. Nice. The ones I've had, I've had for like five years, and they're blown out. Um... And then you're gonna wear your AGV helmet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. But uh, what are you wearing underneath there, Jensen? Nothing. Mm. But I don't. I still don't have my tires. The bike technically isn't back together yet because we're waiting for like an O-ring, um, which is 100% my fault because I shouldn't be allowed to work on bi- on motorcycles. And I think that might be the plan for the rest of the season <laughs> is that I don't touch the bike anymore. <laughs> which I'm just, is, just going to walk up to you every time you touch it and slap you in I the think head. That's, no. like probably, that's probably the best thing for everybody involved. <laughs> um, yeah, so the people at, at uh, Motocourse have been taking care of me on that one. Thank you. Thank you very much on that. Um, that's who has my bike right now. I still get my, my tire warmer still haven't shown up. My lap timer still hasn't shown up. My easy up hasn't shown up yet. Uh, I just got all my fees and stuff done for for Omra. Nice. So I'll be doing. I got my number. I'll be running seven nine seven. What is that for? Is that just a number? That's, they that's gave the race you, number. You, you get it? assigned a race number. Oh, I thought you get to be like, I, I want to be number seven nine seven because it's a combination of uh, my mom and dad and uncle's birthday. I don't know. Yeah. I, no, I mean that's not the case. I mean it, it adds up to be a prime number. There. Ooh. Nice. So that. I like when you talk nerdy to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's race day one? When is it? Uh, it is the 27th. Of April. Of April. So and the 10 20, days from now. The 26th, I have to be on track to do the new racer school. And the 25th, I have to be in a classroom learning how not to kill other people while racing a motorcycle. You know, I only have one big problem with this whole thing. What's that? It's getting in the way of our two-up uh, recording. Yeah, we got to sit down and figure out when that's going on because people are very excited about that. I was Honda only... North America is excited about they, that. They are. Let's talk about how excited they were. I mean, they were not very thrilled about the idea of you putting dirt bike tires on that thing or going... Uh... Or putting a trailer hitch on it. Or So we've got the the idea I was going to do a Honda for, for just a, a month straight. Right. We've got to make an amendment to that because it's not going to work with the racing thing. Nope. So I'm going to say I, mean, I can show up to the track on the Honda just to be like, it got ridden today. That could work. It just, I've got to be able to use my, my SUV to pull the bike to the track. And we've got a couple track days and a couple, um, race weekends. Uh-huh. I mean, basically we're getting into the season. So I think, I think if you'll allow me Shaheen, we'll just do like a little moment. I'm allowed to, to drive my forerunner, but only with my motorcycle trailer on the back of it. Oh, that okay, yeah, that's a good. I'm into that with 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 my you know race yep, bike and yep. stuff on it or my track bike. I'm into on that. That's a good otherwise, reason. Otherwise, we'll do the Honda for the month. I still am kind of bummed that Honda isn't cool with you putting a tow hitch on the Gull Wing, and then you would get a you small know, lightweight uh, trailer to put the put the Kramer and all your belongings on. Like that would be truthfully, if yeah. you showed up to an Omer event like that, I would be like, you know what? I'm going to give you one 
extra point per race every time you show up like this. That should be that should be a thing. And there's a part of me that kind of wants to do the whole it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission when it comes to welding a trailer hitch Honda, on the bike. Honda, when you said you put a like you were joking with them that you put a hitch on there and they i saw an audible gulp they were not happy with me <laughs> taking the i took a honda cba 1000 for uh cb 1000 r for a little while i took that on the track and they weren't so stoked on that but you were like going my pace and i was riding a 390 and i was well, like show me on the waiver where it says i can't not my fault you didn't write a good waiver <laughs> show me on the waiver where it tells me i can't put a trailer hitch on the gold wing yeah i think there probably is revision for that. they're 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 writing that up as you speak yeah <laughs> You brought that up, and they were like, "Ah, oh, shit." Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, yeah, things are getting real. I'm a little stressed out. I'm like at medium stress, though. Are you? Or just like, okay, I got some stuff. I gotta, I gotta get that done. I gotta get this done. I gotta get it ready. I gotta put, I gotta put uh, decals and sponsors and numbers on the bike now. Mm-hmm. I gotta figure that out. Um, we got I had a long conversation today about tires for it. I mean, we got some things percolating, so it's just getting real. It's getting down to the wire it's, it's and go time, uh, man. You have yeah. you have eight days before your don't kill people meeting. Yeah, nine days to, for your uh, what is that that meeting the second the day before the actual race? Is that just a writer's oh, no, meeting? There's a new racer school. Oh. um, so there's yeah they got yeah I got to get my license. I got to get my race license, and then you get to race. How many races this season? That's the other thing. I got to sign up for the race. I have to like check in. Oh, I got to get a transponder. Oh, I got a transponder for the race already. I get a, I got a rental transponder, but I'm trying to buy a transponder. So this is the racket, right? So you got these special transponders that mm-hmm. they're part of a online race results system called MyLaps. And you got to sign up for them. Well, in the past, it was just you bought your transponder and they cost like $500 or whatever. And now it's like a service where like you pay $200 or $300 to buy a transponder and then you pay them like a hundred bucks a year. I, forget, I don't know what the fees are. I haven't looked at it because it's so stupid. It was, exp- it was immediately explained to me like don't bother with the subscription ones. Those things are stupid. Huh. Get on eBay, buy one of the old ones because they still work. They're legacied in and like they basically pay for themselves in like a season. After two seasons, you've broken, you've, you've beyond broken even. You've made money back. So if you plan on racing for more than two seasons, not to mention you can sell it for pretty much what you bought it for. Yeah, it'll hold its value. Like it's just it on no on, on no terms should you be rent or doing the subscription version of these things. So I got to get that figured out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's getting very if, if, real. If you were to put a number to it, what would it cost somebody to start? Not even counting the price of the motorcycle, what would it cost for somebody to go start racing? uh at that level i haven't turned a wheel yet and i've already spent probably two thousand dollars and that's that's but some of that stuff fees and everything that's three hundred dollars in fees for the new racer school to sign up i haven't signed up for any races yet so that's gonna be like five hundred dollars a weekend or something like that four hundred dollars a weekend um but i had to buy tire warmers i'd buy an easy up tent um i already had a generator i mean some of this stuff is like depending on where you're coming from as a track day rider, you probably already, you might already have a generator. You might already have tire warmers. You might already have an easy up. Mm-hmm. I already have a toolbox. That's, that's a very mobile. So I don't need to go buy one of those. I already have a chair and a fan and, and stuff. Like I already have a trailer. Um, so it kind of depends where you're coming in at it. But, um, I bought an aim lap timer. That's like 300, $400. 
Uh, bought two sets of warmers, so there's like $750 down the drain. Tires are not cheap. No. Uh, Where are you getting technical support for mechanical issues? Uh, so Moto, uh, Moto Corsa is doing all my, my wrenching for me, okay. uh, giving me technical support on that. Kramer USA is helping me with all the technical support for the, for the bike itself. Okay. Uh, Pirelli's giving me support for the, all the tires. Um, Kramer's kind of helping me out with the WP suspension. So, so I mean, is there going to be a mechanic on hand during the races if you have no, some kind of a no? So if you have a technical issue that you can't figure out on your own, is that day done? Yeah, probably. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean for sure. I don't think that'll be the issue. The issue will be if I crash. What happens then? So like, I can. Um, depends. Depends. What do you mean? In what way? I mean, let's say you just low sided and you don't, you know, knock on wood, nothing happens to you, but your your clip on gets bent out of shape and your you know shifter levers gets fucked up. Oh, that's one thing. I mean, there's definitely replacement parts that are available, and that's easy enough to work on. But like, let's say I crash and the bike doesn't start again. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean. Done. Unless I can figure it out trackside or at least, you know, someone nearby can look at it and be like, oh, did you check this? I'm probably done for the day. I mean, it seems like uh, I've been to a couple of OMA races and, and there are going to be other people with Kramers out there. Yeah. There's a real good, like, sort of a takes a village mentality out there. For sure. And that's and that's one of the cool things is we've got uh, four or five Kramers on the grid this year. So there's, there's no shortage of people with the exact same bike. And that's what I think is going to be really fun. Mm-hmm. Is having a bunch of us on basically the same machines, um, so you got kind of a little spec class going on. And spec racing is always really close. It's always really uh, challenging. It means it, it comes down to the rider for the most part. So, yeah, that, that, that'll be a lot of fun for me. Are there any rules or regulations for, um, like rider weight? I mean, what if you're racing against someone that's literally sixty pounds lighter than you on the exact same bike? Then you better stop eating. Oof, Project Six Pack. I know, man. That's that's my problem. I look at the other guys in that and that are on the Kramers, and I've easily got like thirty pounds or more, depending on you know who you're comparing me to, in terms of extra weight. Right. So <laughs> that that just means if I get ahead of them, it was definitely rider skill. <laughs> definitely rider skill. Definitely. <laughs> you are the stoner of this uh, series. Yeah, I'm gonna go make everyone put on weight vests to, to balance it out. Like you know, like in go karts where like they put a little ballast on. Like, hey, you're 10 pounds under. Here's a. Should little... I just show up with donuts every uh, every race? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, day? <laughs> no, they not for you, Jensen. The for other away from me because I love donuts. <laughs> so, oh man, no, for sure. No, I'm going to the gym tonight. Yeah, I'm excited for you. I think it's gonna be a fun, very, very full season. Are you signed up for every race, or are you gonna be away a couple? Um, I mean, the plans to do every race. There is talk that there is a press launch in Europe that is going to be on I think the same weekend as our fourth round but that's not confirmed hmm. so that potentially I could be missing there's always a chance there's another uh, conflict with work um, obviously asphalt workers kind of have to take a, a priority on it but my goal is to do every round nice and I will certainly do every round that I am here and ready for so what does one win you get a little plastic trophy nice is there any money involved uh, there was I mean, some, aside from the one you're actually, spending, I think there was some talk of of doing a little money for the Kramer people, but I don't think that ever happens. So. so, where's all this money that people are spending to do this series going? <laughs> it goes into the motorcycle ecosystem, I guess. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I was looking at just like budgets. Like, my biggest, if this if this was completely out of out of pocket for me, my biggest expenses would be tires, followed closely by fuel. 
So that money goes to the tire companies and the fuel yeah. companies. But I'm talking about like the money that you spend to go to the actual race. Oh, like my entry fees. Yeah, your entry fee goes into the club. I mean, it's not cheap to run a race. You've got a, uh, I don't know how many, almost a volunteer organization. So I don't know how many people collect any sort of payment for their time there. Um, but you know, you got to rent the track. You got to rent the track. You got to pay for the corner workers. You got to yeah. pay for the medical crew. Yeah, you got to pay something like that. You're probably closing in just right there. That's got to be like. $10,000. I'm asking these questions because oh, no, I wanted to broadcast weekend. it. It's got to be even more. It's probably close to $15,000. Oh, it's got to be. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the times that I worked at Motocorsa and other dealerships that rent out a track for a track day and how expensive it is to have that. Yeah. You know, ju just to rent the piece of and, land that you're going to be riding on doesn't include the personnel, doesn't include the medical, doesn't include, if you're lucky, the food. PIR is an, is a oddly expensive track to rent too, yeah. compared to other facilities that i know that are let's just say better uh, it's overpriced yeah but it's also inside of a city so maybe not i think maybe most, not most track organize organizers whether it's a dealership or a private organizer they, they don't make a lot of money from the actual entry fees on these things and it's something we've always had to explain to people like we're not charging you 200 or 250 bucks for this day because we're running to the bank laughing the whole time it's paying for this thing and it's sort of, you know, the money that dealerships make on a track day is hopefully you going in there and buying some gear, tires, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Like, what a tough business to make a buck in. Yeah. So, you know, for me, you know, and, and it's expensive to go race. So I get it. Like, for me, like, it works on a lot of levels. And I, and that's why like, I can make an easy decision on it. Whereas, like, if I was just in it for the fun of it, Man, I could have a lot of fun doing a lot of other things. Like, I'm going to go skiing this weekend, mm -hmm. and that's kind of an expensive sport, and we're spending just a fraction of what my entry fees would be for yeah. for the weekend. And that's for two people to go skiing. So has anyone asked you the question yet, why are you doing this? Not the skiing. I mean the motorcycle race. No, I mean, I think I've talked about it a little bit. I mean, for, for me, it's something I've kind of always wanted to do. There's, there is... <laughs> It is funny how in the motorcycle industry, like an, I feel like the, an amateur racing license is is more valuable than a college degree because for some reason that's just how it is in the U.S. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm going back to school. Um, I'll put it on my wall. But um, for me, like like I said earlier, like you know, I was I was a super bike rider. I learned how to make a lap time up with a rear wheel. Yeah. At the detriment of not really learning how to make a lap time on a front wheel. So that's that's a skill that I want to learn. I'm uh, I'm tired of seeing Rennie and Ari and <laughs> Zach uh, and some others blow past me at press launches, and uh, I don't know if I can quite get to their level because those are very talented riders. Um, but you know, at least close that gap a little bit. At least learn something uh, about this craft. Make a little bit more of an investment in my motorcycling ability. Because truthfully, as a journalist, you need to ride the bike hard enough to be able to evaluate it. But you also need to make sure the bike comes home in one piece. And I do pride myself on the fact that Asphalt and Rubber has a very good track record on bringing bikes back in one piece. Once we've brought every bike back, but over 10 years, I can think of like two or three bikes that had that we had incidents and none of them were our fault. <laughs> um, like it was something that we did that was stupid. It was a car pulling out in front of us. It was a car changing lanes. It was, it, it does make you ride at kind of an 80% kind of thing, which is very dulling. 
Right. So I want to be able to to learn. I need to be able to push myself. And the way you do that is by chasing people who are faster than you. So I'm very fortunate that I've got you know four or five other people on um, you know the Kramer grid who are very fast who I get to go chase. Um, so that's that's like the personal level for me as like a human. Like I want to learn more. I want to bring something more to the table as a journalist. I want to understand the amateur racing scene a little bit better. I want to improve myself as a motorcycle rider. The upside is as a journalist, that means I can do a bunch of stories about it. And while I don't think that anyone really cares that much about whether or not I got second, third, fifth, or sixth right. on any particular race, there is going to be, I think, uh, some interesting things that come up through this process in terms of how do you set up suspension? How do you read tire wear? What fuel should you run? What, you know, um, what do you need to go to the track? What gear should you wear? What's going on in the amateur racing scene? What, what does a new racing school mean? And what does that, what, what do you actually learn from that? And what does that get you? Um, I think there's a good number of stories. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm planning about a dozen stories, uh, over the course of this season. Okay. That kind of use my racing experience as launching off points into topics that I think are generally relevant to all riders and highly relevant to riders who are interested in going racing. Um, and then there's like the the overarching spot where it gets maybe hopefully a little bit more awareness for asphalt and rubber through through my results here in Portland. So uh, for me, it makes a lot of sense. Like I can I can make a pretty good argument on why spending that much money over the year has value. And I think that's probably part of the conversation. It's like, okay, so if that's me, and I'm still kind of sitting here going like, man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, what does that mean for for Joe Schmo, who's sitting in his garage with an SV650 and thinks about going racing and yeah. being like, hey, I've got $10,000. What's going to maximize my fun? <sighs> I don't know, man. You can buy a lot of jet skis. <laughs> you could do a lot of travel. You could do a lot of you everything. Could, you could go see the world on $10,000. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting. That's, and that's part of the problem that the sport's facing. I think I think one of the biggest things about motorcycling for a lot of us is being able to push ourselves and you know that doesn't necessarily mean going to that nth degree on a racetrack for some people it's riding a longer distance going off-road going a path that they wouldn't have done riding in the rain any number of things that takes you out of that comfort zone so I applaud you for doing this cuz I mean yeah it's going to cost you a lot of money uh but you are you know hopefully going to affect the readership and listenership in a positive way because they're going to learn a lot through you because hopefully you're going to broadcast all this. That's the hope, right? Um, and, and I should preface like, you know, I don't have to spend that much of my money compared to what most people are doing. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a lot of help from, from a bunch of different people from, uh, Pirelli, from Kramer, from Motocorsa, from, uh, Dainese and IGV, um, Rotobox, trying to think who else has been helping me along the way yeah I mean, there's definitely a lot more support so like i'm really fortunate in that regard because of, of quite frankly just what i do and who i am in the industry um so i think there's there's got to be a, some sort of thought on how we can make that approachable and possible for people that don't have a big motorcycle website or a, a podcast or right a social media following well at the end of the day all we're doing then this is talking about our experiences and hoping other people will go out. I mean, everybody always asks me why I constantly put up pictures of my motorcycle on Instagram and talking about this stuff. I'm, I'm not showing off. I'm ultimately, I'm not an influencer, right? I don't have 40,000 followers, but 
if I can just get five more people throughout the year to go out and experience it and kind of get out of their regular comfort zone, that's that's magic to me. That's amazing to me. That anytime I get a text or an email or uh, you know DM from somebody that says, "Dude, I put on some knobbies on my bike and actually took it out somewhere, and it's amazing. You see so much more." High five, man. That's awesome. That that's that matters a lot to me. So if even if we can get one or two listeners or readers of Asphalt and Rubber to go and do a, simply just a track day where they can learn a little yeah. bit more, that's awesome. That that is the ultimate. That 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 is uh, that gives us reason to do more of this uh, and broadcast it more, hoping that it'll reach more ears. Because ultimately, we love this sport and it's a small sport. And if we can get more people involved in it, then that'll keep it afloat and alive for us to keep doing it. It's sort of selfish and self-serving, but it's too much fun. Anyone that does it uh, sort of understands it. Anyone who doesn't do it looks at us as a bunch of hooligans. Uh, Very recently, we lost a dear friend in Spain to motorcycling, and uh, uh, one of my closest buddies out there who who was with him had to explain to our our departed friend's family and his girlfriend that this happened— uh, his girlfriend rides motorcycles, but the rest of his family never quite understood it. And, you know, how do you explain that to somebody? How do you explain to somebody that the person died doing something they love doing and that we're going to continue on doing it because it's such a fundamental part of our lives and it affects us in such a great way? Uh, 99% of the people that are closest to me came to me because of motorcycling. 99% of my best experiences in life came to me because of motorcycling. So, you know, we we talk about this stuff and we ask all the questions and we talk you know, bring up all these subjects because we want you to listen or to hopefully be able to do the exact same thing and then help us grow this business, not the business, but grow the sport so that there's more people involved in it, whether you're buying a used bike or a new bike, which I feel like that should be a conversation we should have soon about the uh, the increase in used bike sales. That seems to be a big um, subject lately. Yeah. My my five second analysis on that is motorcycle, new motorcycles are too expensive, so people are buying used ones. Yep. And that's something I brought up at at our dinner, and I don't know. Well, I mean, Ducati's an interesting position. We, we can talk about that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shaheen, it is it is that witching hour. I kept saying we should we need to stop making two hour shows, and here we are, like an hour and a half. That's good. That's short compared to the last yeah, couple of shows. It's still long, man. That's still <laughs> a lot of editing. But um, so we'll get out of it. We'll go get some dinner. We'll go find a substitute for our burger that we missed out on. <sighs> Hit the spot, though. Hit the spot. Maybe. If you live in the Portland area and you haven't tried it and you like hamburgers, it's called Hit the Spot. It's and 100 percent blue uh, food cart. 100% understand that we're getting a free burger by plugging this. Oh, absolutely. And I am totally fine with plugging food. I'm not You want you run a motorcycle company? You're going to have a hard time getting a freebie out of me. Oh, yeah. Fucking food. burgers, though? Quickest way to my, no ha- problem. my heart is through my stomach. But I understand that's a really tough tasty burger it is so damn i'm telling you get yourself <laughs> I'm genuinely any style upset we're not having it for dinner tonight no i'm really sad i'm trying to figure out a way tomorrow that i can do this my lap times are genuinely happy about it though. <laughs> uh, you um, cannot be as as heavy as your kramer especially now with carbon wheels on it. oh my gosh yeah yeah maybe that we, maybe we should rethink this. but i promise you this week will not end without that burger in my stomach so it's up to you to join me mm, i'll be the devil on your shoulder yeah, you're not a positive influence I, I mean i am to your stomach your All lap right. times are gonna get fucked. All right, sir. Let's go. Um, right. I haven't done this in a while, so I should say if you aren't following us on right. social media, yep. you should be on Twitter. We are at We Brap Talk. On Instagram, we are at Brap Talk. Yep. 
Facebook. Uh, Facebook is Brap Talk Motorcycle Podcast. Pretty sure. Yep. Yep. Uh, you can email us at we, we brap, brap talk. Yeah, we brap talk at gmail.com. And if you happen to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please, 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 please leave us a rating and review because Apple's podcasting app thing is bananas. It's really hard to find the podcast when you search for motorcycle podcasts. It can be some weird results can pop up sometime when you type in brap talk, like Mazda, like Mazda, which Why? makes no sense to me whatsoever. So, uh, if you, if you want, if you like the show, you want other people to find it, leave us a, a review, leave us a rating that kind of helps in the algorithm. Tell your friends that you, that you listen to this podcast, share it with a friend. In fact, right now, stop what you're doing. Find one of your motorcycle buddies on your phone that probably doesn't listen to podcasts or does, but doesn't listen to us and send this show to them or yeah. any show really that we've done. doesn't have to be this one. No, but this one's pretty good. This Why one's not? pretty good. That's all right. I'm in it. Well, I gotta give it like nine out of ten. You know the Shaw of we, we, we both showed up. No, you're the Twilight Sparkles. <laughs> Twilight Sparkles, Shaw, Shaw of Twilight Sparkles. Yeah. Um, because truthfully, like just like we want to grow the industry, we want to grow our audience and spread the good word. So I think that that helps do that. Spread the word of Brappa. Come on down and get a hallelujah, Hallabrappa. Hallabrappa. Look at That's that. Right. Hashtag Hallabrappa. Wow, we just discovered a new thing. Oh. That's good, sir. Well, let's end on that. You know what they say. Safety third. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Hello, my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brapp... Oh. <laughs> Let's try that again. 